Hey, as you're sitting down, guys, if you need a Bible, am I not talking loud enough? If you need, if you need a Bible, we got Tom right here. He's holding up Bibles. We would love you to have a Bible. So please raise your hand if you need one. If you have a device, we're going to be in the ESV version. So you can click on that and follow along there as well. You want to go to Acts 5. We're in Acts 5 today. I think we're in week... Well, we're in week something through our series in Acts. Acts 5, we're going to be going through verses 12 through 42. We're talking a little bit about adversity today. When you think of adversity, um, we would define that as difficulty or maybe misfortune. Maybe something in our lives that we didn't count on being there that presented itself. And now we're faced with what to do. What do you do when things come into your life, they seem to pop into your existence and they're unwelcomed and they're unwarranted and they were, um, they were unnoticed maybe as something that was coming, but you couldn't see it. We, uh, we were in Denver last month. We were visiting our daughter. And um, so we decided, hey, you know, what a great idea would be is to do a little hiking. And um, Denver's the mile high city. So our daughter was like, why don't we drive like an hour up the mountain and uh, hike up there? And um, I said, okay, why? Because like down here, it's not high enough. Um, and she said, no. So I said, okay. So we drove up and we got to this, uh, we got to this sort of this hiking trail called Strawberry Lake. Maybe some of you have been there. If you've been out to Denver, I guess it's famous. And um, everything feels great, right? Everything's fine. I got my boots on. You know, I got my North Face garb on. I'm feeling like, yeah, man, I'm fitting in with the Denver hipster crowd. I'm fitting in with the Ashland hipster crowd, right? And um, I'm feeling confident, right? And um, man, we take off down the trail and we're about 10 feet into the trail. And all of a sudden I, I stop and I'm like dizzy and I'm getting ready to like collapse. And her boyfriend is there ready to catch me. And like, y'all know I didn't want that to happen, right? <laughs> like none, none of, nothing about me wanted that to happen. Right. So I said, guys, and I'm feeling, you know, I'm not feeling great about it. And I'm, I'm like grabbing a tree, not to hug it, but just to like hold me steady. And um, I'm like, guys, I'm like, I, I literally feel sick right now. And uh, Mike, my daughter's boyfriend, said, I, I think you're experiencing altitude sickness. And I said, just like that? I go, literally, we've taken like 14 steps. And he said, yeah, just like that. That's how it happens. And um, of course, my wife's depressed because she's thinking, great, we drove all the way up here and now we're going to be able to do the hike. You know, she had a lot of compassion for me in that moment. So I soldiered on and after every corner around every tree, I was told, no, the lake is just ahead. You know, like an hour later, we're just getting to the lake and it wasn't a lake, it was a pond, you know. And by that time, man, it was just like I had hit a wall and I said, guys, I go, you know me, normally I play the tough guy scenario. <laughs> but, but I can't do that today. I'm done. I'm done. Um, what a horrible illustration for where I'm getting ready to go. But really what it was, was it was something in my life that I wasn't expecting and I didn't know how to push through. In fact, I didn't, I didn't really have anything to push through. At first I thought, dude, you've gotten in that bad of shape that you can't do a mile long hike, but it was more than that. There were elements, there were things there that were affecting me that I, that I couldn't have anticipated. And that's what we find ourselves in many times. That's what the disciples and the apostles find themselves. It's the place they find themselves in as we've gotten this far in the book of Acts. Psalm 34 is helpful for us. 
Psalm 34 tells us, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So we have a promise from the psalmist that reminds us that, hey, we are not going to be a people that is going to uh, be in any situation in our life at the absence of adversity, right? We're going to face things. We're going to face things that we weren't anticipating, but we also have a God that is there to deliver us in very unique ways. And by the way, not not always in the way that we think he's going to uh, deliver us, right? But we struggle with adversity. There's something about that, especially if you are a believer, there's something inside of you that says, I shouldn't be struggling. There's something about my relationship with God that makes me think that, wait a minute, why am I hitting any roadblocks? Why am I hitting discomfort? And so we don't see adversity the way that we're supposed to rightly see it. We don't see it as part of God's ongoing story in our lives, as part of God's ongoing story of mercy that he's literally copying, pasting, and imprinting on our lives. So if you feel spent this morning... If like what I just described when I was up there an hour and a half north of Denver in the mountains, if you feel that kind of breathlessness right now, if you feel like God has been working against you, if you feel like you're in a strange and an unfamiliar place in your life, well, this is what we're going to read about. We're going to read about what happened to the disciples and how God miraculously and mercifully delivered them. Let's pick up in chapter 5, verse 12. This is what it says. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. So this would have been sort of the entrance, the hangout spot, the fellowship place of the temple. All right. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So that they even carried out the sick onto the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And verse 16 says, The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's just pause right there because what we're seeing here is that everything that the church has been experiencing, all the ups, all the downs up to this point, is the fact that God's power continues to advance. Remember, so last week, we read that great fear had come over the church. Why? Well, because Ananias and Sapphira, these two colorful characters, had attempted to deceive God and deceive the church, which doesn't seem like that big of a deal until we read that they were struck dead, right? And so the disciples, they could have said, they could have reacted a particular way. They could have said, you know what? A little break right about now sounds like an awesome idea. But that's not how they respond. In fact, it was their fear and their reverence of God's holiness, which is what Ananias and Sapphira lacked, and their understanding of the cost of following Jesus that motivated them to continue the work of the ministry. So in verse 12 here, we see that God's power, it continues to advance as they perform many signs and wonders. And more than ever, it says, believers are added to the Lord. Well, Those who don't want to identify with Jesus, with the church, and with the gospel movement that was spreading, well, they kept their distance because the heat had been turned up on the church, and there were many people now who were saying, hey, this is scary. That whole thing that happened with Ananias and Sapphira, man, that's not for me. That's not for me. That's not the cost 
that I want to be counting in terms of myself being and identifying as a follower of Jesus. And by the way, it's not much different today, right? Those who have not counted the high cost of following Jesus, sometimes, well, sometimes they, they fade from the ranks of fellowship with the people of Jesus. We see that all the time. That's why the church needs to be a people that, number one, welcomes those who don't follow Jesus, but at the same time encourages those who claim to be Jesus' followers to remain faithful to the mission, right? And here's what I mean. Substance cannot just be a once a week social gathering. That can't be what this is. This cannot be just a time where we all get together as spiritually informed people who like to hang in a warehouse that feels like a fixer-upper for Chip and Joanna, right? I love Chip and Joanna, I'm not ragging on them. But that's not what this can be. It can't merely be that. We need to be a gathering place for multitudes, whatever God defines as multitudes for us in Ashland, Ohio, multitudes of men, women, and children to be added to the Lord and then growing in the Lord for the glory of the Lord, right? We need to see God's power manifested through stories of brokenness that allow us to behold God's glory even more vividly and even more brightly. Now, how that power is expressed, well, that's up to God, right? So at the times of the early church, it was through many signs and wonders, what we read here, performed by the apostles. Now, at this time, in the American church, in the history of the church where we're at, uh, it will likely be expressed through lives that are signs of the wonders of the mercy of Christ. And let's not miss or dismiss that the power of God to call people out of darkness and into his marvelous light, like Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, man, it is the same power. It is the same power that God had uniquely given the apostles to perform these particular signs and wonders. So what you're going to see this morning when we do baptisms in a few minutes is that Jesus has the power. Jesus has the unmatchable power, and it's a power to transform people. It's the same Jesus that empowered Peter's shadow, it says, to heal those who fell under it. It's the same power just that, that healed the sick woman from Mark 5 who said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. It's the same power that we need to pray emboldens us to proclaim the gospel and then perform acts of care for those in need as people who are fallen under the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do and work out the acts of mercy that God has given us to perform, right? So let's make sure that we guard against even this early in the series. I know we got like four more years in the series, but let's make sure we guard against reading Acts as being this thing that happened back then that's loosely but largely unrelated to our story now. When Jesus began to build his church, he made no concession for break times during his construction, right? He didn't do that. The church is not static. Even when it feels like it is, God's doing something. It's constantly being built up because Jesus is constant. Jesus is tirelessly, sleeplessly at work, building it up like he was doing it back then. So when you read about, listen, these apostles doing the work of the gospel, don't think for a minute that you're not the continuation of it. Now, you may not be performing signs and wonders, but your life is a sign of the wonder and mercy of Christ. 
You Pentecostals aren't going to like that I just said that. So as God's power advances in the life of the early church with signs and wonders, we also see resistance continuing to rise as well. Let's pick up in verse 17. Look what it says. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Verse 24, now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain with the official officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So let's stop right there. What we see here we just back up a little bit, is that Jesus began what is an unstoppable movement. It's unstoppable. It's unstoppable because we're all sitting here. The Roman government couldn't stop him. The religious leaders couldn't stop him. And nobody's going to stop the people he empowers to carry the message forward. They, I mean, they try. There were religious leaders called the Sadducees, who we just read about, who, unlike the Pharisees, they were a little bit different. Um, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were also tied in very closely with the Roman government. So they go ahead and they arrest the apostles because the temple, in their opinion, was being hijacked by all these Christians. And what this means in practical terms was that the Roman government wasn't being helped by the Sadducees in keeping the temple under their control, right? You following me? So the Sadducees had become jealous due to their loss of influence and control, right? So what's happening here is like some political stuff. Now remember, the apostles were not impressive dudes. They were not impressive men by the world's standards, but they were upsetting the social order of the day. Don't you just love how God does that? They were an opposing force to the oppressive power that the high priests and Sadducees had over the people. And that is how God likes to work, by the way. He likes to take the most unimpressive people imaginable and display his power through them. Inevitably, in that, all the way through history, up until now and moving forward, resistance rears its head. And it rears its head when the hearts of God's people are emboldened to finally open their mouths and stop shutting up. Now, that's scary for us. Well, it's scary for me. Because I fear resistance. Resistance is a fearful thing for me. But then we think, well, what does resistance to God even mean at the end of the day? I remember when we were kids and we used to build those blanket forts, right? Maybe you guys still do this. You do this with your kids. I mean, 
Those things weren't impenetrable, I'm just saying, right? At no point did my parents think, great, until they come out, we're never going to be able to get them to bed or do their chores again, right? They didn't have that kind of power. They weren't impenetrable fortresses. When man tries to oppose the work of God, it may not be insignificant opposition. It may be significant, but it never incapacitates God. It may even hurt God's people, but it will never prevent God from helping his people. And that's literally what happens in verse 19. We see this miracle happen. An angel miraculously opens the prison door and he releases these brothers. And literally, what does he do? Well, he throws a party for him. He says, guys, it's been a tough run and uh, there's cake and uh, some goodies in the back. And I just want you guys to rest. And I want you to just, you know, re, you know, just re-engage with one another and build up your strength and reinforce. He doesn't do any of that. He literally sends them back to the temple to pick up right back where they left off. And you know what happens? They do it. They literally do it. And of course, this is where some of the humor of God comes in. You, you got to read this a little humorously because, I mean, here you have the Sadducees, this group of religious leaders who don't believe in angels. And what happens? The apostles get released from prison by an angel, by a messenger of God. And on top of that, they don't have a clue that the apostles never even escaped, ever even escaped. The high priest gets his council together, but when the officers go to retrieve their apostles, they're gone and nobody knows what happened. The guards are scratching their heads. The council is perplexed. Where are they? Oh, they're back in the temple preaching, right? I mean, you can just hear the high priest going, am I crazy? And that's the unstoppableness of God. It frustrates the plans of men. Job 5.12 reminds us of that when he says, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no Success. God always does what God plans on doing. And it's unstoppable. And of course, what happens next is a repeat of what we read back in chapter four when they were brought before the council. Let's pick up in 27. He says, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you would tend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The apostles are like, fellas, how many times do we have to tell you that we're going to obey God rather than men? And that we're going to preach Jesus, who FYI you killed. The apostles were no strangers to the resistance that came with speaking truth. They were with Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So this was a group of men that wasn't unfamiliar to resistance. It was an expectation for them. 
And it was a platform for them to give testimony to the mercies of Christ and the cross. By the way, they were also men who were filled with the Holy Spirit, which means in their hearts, the Spirit was giving testimony to them to speak the gospel message. And that's the effect that the Spirit has in all of us who have come to repent and believe the gospel. We are reminded, we are encouraged by God's Spirit because he bears testimony to the truth that what we believe is not crazy, but that it's true. And he provides us evidence that it is true. So man's resistance, well, what is that to God? Well, it's no match for God's manifestation of power. So the council here is spiraling out of control, right? They don't know what the heck is going on until this rabbi named Gamaliel stands up and he reasons with the council. Now, Gamaliel, this is a, a dude that would have been a well-known rabbi at the time. And in fact, he was actually the teacher of Paul the Apostle. But look what he says in verse 33. He says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, but he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, he says, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his, his advice, verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So in a nutshell, Gamaliel comes to the table, a man that's held in high honor, high esteem, somebody of which these men would have wanted to listen to, and they do. And he says, look, before you do anything rash, think for a minute. And then he proposes an argument that contains incredible nuggets of biblical truth for us. He says, there have been uprisings of men that in the end came to nothing. Remember that. Look in the past. He said, so leave these men alone. Because if what they're doing is of man, it's going to fail. It's going to scatter. But if it's of God, you'll not only not be able to stop them, but you'll be in direct opposition to God. In other words, what Gamaliel was saying was, slow your roll, boys. And Gamaliel's words here remind us of a foundational but often forgotten truth which takes us back to what I said a few minutes ago, which is simply this. Can God be stopped? Is it possible for God to be prevented of doing anything that is in his plan by the people that he actually breathed life into and created? I mean, do you see how basic and fundamental we want to get with this, right? And we want to let that sink in for a minute. Think about your own life. Think about the adversities that you faced. And then think about this adversity. 
And then think about the truth that scripture tells us over and over again, which is that God cannot be prevented from doing anything that he desires to do. And even the things that are being done that look like, oh man, God's taking some hits now, they're not. Because he has preordained those things to happen to fit into some larger plan that we have literally zero capacity to understand. That's the unstoppableness of God. I mean, think about the end of every Rocky movie for a minute, right? No matter how many times Rocky gets hit, that dude just keeps coming back. You know what the problem is? The problem is, is when we get to Rocky five and Rocky's like 89 years old and he can be stopped, right? That's a picture of all of us. And then there is God who cannot be stopped. And so what God does in the lives of his people is he intervenes to show us his unstoppableness in our greatest distress. Psalm 118 verse 5 reminds us of this. The psalmist writes, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So interestingly, the council listens to Gamaliel, but not without beating the apostles and charging them to stop all the Jesus talk. And then, of course, we read one of the most stunning statements in verse 41, which says, Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So let's not miss the narrative here so far. God's power advances. But so does resistance. But in the end, mercy prevails for these brothers. So how do we explain that? How do we explain this? How do we explain men who were beaten with 39 lashes and the first thing out of their mouths is rejoicing for being counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus? How do we explain their unceasing devotion to preaching Jesus from the temple to the living room despite the threats? How do we explain that? How do you explain that? Well, the answer is that God's mercy had prevailed in their hearts. Peter and the apostles were locked up. There was no recourse. There was no way to see the end of that. There was no way to sort of plan an escape, right? This wasn't one of those Alcatraz movies. They were at the mercy of the high priest and the Sadducees. But were they? Were they at the mercy of those corrupt religious leaders. Are you? If you're a child of God, are you really at the mercy of those things that feel adversarial in your life? Because in reality, and I need you to listen to me, those who have been saved by God are at the mercy of God alone. 
And that includes you. Because here's the thing, you're not really at the mercy of that boss who's making your life a living hell. You're not really. You're not really at the mercy of a harsh classmate or an unreasonable teacher. I know we have so many teachers in here, I'm not talking about you. You're not really at the mercy of an unjust system that you feel is oppressing you or keeping you down. You're not really at the mercy of circumstances beyond your control. Now, I'm not saying you're not affected by those things. These brothers were affected by these things. I'm saying before anything else, you're at the mercy of God who ordains these things for good. Which means those adversities in your life are subject to a greater mercy in your life. Let me say it to you like this. Those adversities are at the mercy of the greater mercy in your life. Does that make sense? How different would it be if we understood that? How different might it be if we remembered that, if we believed that? If we remembered that nothing can stop the plans of God for the people of God, and because of that, we are people who have nothing to lose. How is it that God always prevails? That even when it appears he is thwarted, he never is. And when the pressure increases, somehow the hearts of his believers are even more courageous. What does this tell us about the power of God and those who pursue God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, it tells us that adversity is the avenue in which God's saints discover how God's strength becomes embodied in them. So do we seek resistance? Do we seek opposition then? Well, no. We don't have to because it's going to find us if we are bold. But we shouldn't fear it because God's power will be made manifest in us when we're at our most vulnerable, like these dudes. And the disciples, they knew who they were. Do you think Peter thought, man, I don't deserve this when he was sitting in prison? He didn't think that because he'd counted the cost. He knew the resistance he would face as a follower of Jesus. And by the way, even if Jesus would have kept the apostles in prison, the work would have continued. But mercy prevailed because men could not prevent God from it in the way that he chose to extend it. Well, what is, what is mercy exactly? We use the, the M word a lot. What do I mean by that? Well, simple definition is mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. God not giving you what you deserve. So here's my question as we end. What place do you find yourself in today of which God's mercy will help you endure? Because I know where I am oftentimes, and which is I, I resent the place God has me because I feel like I'm worth more than what I'm being made to go through. I'm better than this, God. I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to be made to suffer through this. And so as I was reflecting on this passage, I began to think about just the mercy of God in my own life. I, and I started writing out what I, what I called an I don't deserve list. An I don't deserve list. 
What don't I deserve? Well, here's just a few things. I don't deserve this beautiful community. And it is a beautiful community. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this church family that God, not me, has built. I don't deserve this building that God has provided for us in all the unique ways that he has. I don't deserve to be preaching mercy and grace to you all every week. I don't deserve to do that. I don't deserve the privilege of serving this family of saints every week, every day. I don't deserve my house. I don't deserve my neighbors. I don't deserve my wife. I don't deserve my daughter, my clothing, my cat. Actually, I really don't deserve my cat. I shouldn't have said that. That's, I wanna, let me scratch that from the list. I deserve none of it, much less Christ, through whom are all things and through whom I exist. I am nothing. Do you understand that? None of this is deserved. What would be on your I don't deserve list? Should you make one? Should you make one today as you're contemplating God's mercy in your life? It'll be a fun Sunday afternoon for you. By the way, it's not a list to wallow in. It's a list to take you straight to the cross. You're not getting what you deserve because Jesus got what he didn't deserve. And for some of you in your life right now, daylight savings time is, is more than just a, a shift of the clock. It's a metaphor for you. The days are short. Some of you leave for work when it's dark and you get home when it's dark. And for some of you, that is your life, spiritually, emotionally, physically. And so living in light of God's mercy gives these short, nothing but dark days meaning. And it helps bring you to moments of rejoicing. Because how else does one rejoice in adversity? Well, the disciples could only rejoice because God's mercy had marinated in their hearts. They didn't think they were above suffering, above discomfort, above even death. Because remember where they came from. Remember who they saw suffer. Well, they saw Christ suffer, didn't they? They saw him hanging on the tree. That was the visual they took with them to Solomon's portico. They saw him breathe his last breath so that our last breath wouldn't be our last breath. That God was giving them more breath to preach the gospel was like a gift of immeasurable proportion for them. So how will a fresh understanding of God's mercy help you today? What about your adversity has kept you from rejoicing? And by the way, Jesus doesn't minimize your suffering because he suffered. We also know that suffering of different kinds exists. Some of it is due to your sin. Some is due to you being sinned against. But it is Christ's suffering. It's Christ's suffering that shows how mercy is provided for all suffering. Because nobody suffered more greatly than Christ. Peter encourages us with this comforting news in his, his letter, his first Peter, chapter one, verse three. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There's that unstoppableness right there. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's hope because there's something coming. The mercy you're experiencing today is giving way to the greatest mercy someday. You're not getting what you deserve because Jesus got what he didn't deserve. And when the mercy of Jesus marinates in your heart, you begin to view adversity through an entirely different lens. So instead of saying, why me? You say, why not me? You view prosperity through a different lens too. Well, how do you do that? Well, I'm going to tell you. Instead of seeing blessings as being owed you, you see them as opportunities to bless others with. Why? Well, because you were not given what you deserve. Because your life is a sign of the wonder and mercy of Christ. Because in the end, you're not at the mercy of anyone or anything other than God ever again. And Peter reminds us again in his letter, chapter 4, verse 13. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is a dude that's obviously writing from experience. He says this, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, see what he says there? If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. This was a brother who was writing from what he experienced and the mercy that God had given him through the adversity that God had ordained him to go through for his good and for the glory of God. And so today we will hear the stories of four people who have not gotten what they deserved because Jesus got what he didn't deserve. Four people who are not at the mercy of anyone or anything other than God ever again. You will hear snapshots of adversity and resistance. You will hear how God's love brought them to faith and repentance. That today, what they are doing is making a public proclamation that they are now sons and daughters of the living God. Having come from darkness to light. Peter told the people in Acts 2, 38, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, what you're going to be seeing this morning is an act of obedience for all who have counted the cost to follow Jesus. Who, by the way, said in John chapter 16, 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you have peace. In the world you will have peace tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we're going to see a living document of that peace and that overcoming of the world that Christ has poured into their hearts because of his love for them through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for them now as they get ready to come up and share with us. God, we thank you for your mercy to us through adversity in our lives we thank you that the same help and hope that you gave to these apostles 
is the same mercy, the same help, and the same hope that you've given to us because we share the same spirit that encourages us, that reminds us that what we're going through is not for nothing and that truly we are not at the mercy of anyone after we have become your son or your daughter. God, let this truth change us. Let it fill us with hope today as we look and see the things that we are battling against, that we feel like are coming against us like waves. Lord, draw us back to Christ. Draw us back to hope. Lord, I pray that you'd bless these brothers and sisters that are getting ready to come up and share with us and are getting ready to symbolize their journey from darkness into light. Would you bless them? Would you bless their words? Would you use their words in our hearts to be reminded that you can't be stopped and that salvation comes only from Jesus and that it's to him we give glory and praise and honor to this morning for these lives and this life that we have in him. So we thank you for this. We're grateful people because without you, we are nothing. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.